Hey there, I'm Gilad Barash, and welcome to Who's Your Data, the podcast that deals with how data influences life and how life influences data, the human side of data analytics. Today I talked to Chris Witherspoon, entertainment journalist and pop culture expert turned tech entrepreneur, about his new venture, Pop Viewers, a social app that democratizes and personalizes content review in a way that includes all voices. We discuss lack of diversity in data collection of traditional media companies and how Pop Viewers seeks to fix that. Chris also discusses his journey venturing into tech entrepreneurship for the first time and his observations from the trenches, the importance of being your authentic self, which apparently even Oprah agrees with, the way big tech exploits black content without crediting its creators, and his vision of a future where everyone's voice is heard in the conversation about content. Chris also mentioned crowdfunding through WeFunder, and you can find them on wefunder.com slash popviewers if you're interested. So let's get to the interview. All right. Hello, Chris Witherspoon. How are you? I am great. How are you? Thank you for having me. Love the title of your podcast, Who's Your Data? So I was like, I got to be here for that. <laughs> First thing I want to ask you is something I ask all my guests is what has surprised you about yourself during this time of COVID? I'm kind of shocked by how much TV I can watch. I know that might sound sort of cliche considering my line of work, but I've, I've never in my life watched as much TV and as much movies and been okay doing it and not gotten bored doing it. Like tonight, for example, it's a Friday night, old me, old life, old world would have been out at happy hour. My God, yes. Dinner, you know, I, I broke it up a little bit, but tonight I'm doing what I did last night and what I did the night before <laughs> and the night before, which is right around 9 p.m., 9.30, putting my phone away and watching TV, binging something, going on one of my different platforms that I'm a part of and consuming some content. And that that's that's crazy to me. That surprises me that I'm still okay doing that. <laughs> yeah, I know. The fact that that's become routine. I mean, for me, Friday evening, go to the gym and then sit, get some food and watch RuPaul's Drag Race. Sounds that's like a perfect it. night to me. Oh, and I forgot drag races on Friday night. So I'll be doing that. I'll be doing That's that. Right. So Chris, the reason that I really wanted to have you on the podcast is because I am really fascinated by your journey as a tech entrepreneur and the fact that it didn't start out like that. And so I wanted to ask you, how did you become a tech entrepreneur and what led to the creation of the app that you created, Pop Viewers? And if you can explain a little bit about what it is. Yeah, let me tell you, I'll tell you a story that kind of led to me having the idea for pop viewers, which essentially is how I'm a tech entrepreneur. But in my other life, um, I still do this. I still go on TV shows and talk about, um, you know, what to watch next, what movies with the films. I'm, I'm, I'm what they call a pop culture expert. I've been an entertainment journalist for many years. And the last job I had, I was working for Rotten Tomatoes, um, who's owned by Fandango. So I worked for Fandango primarily, but I was doing some stuff for Rotten Tomatoes. And for those of you that don't know, it's a critic aggregate that, um, you know, a few critics take part in this score that's very important in Hollywood. And what I began to notice was when I was going to advanced screenings and also interviewing the cast of films, there was... Uh, a bit of shade sometimes that I would get from the publicists, from the cast members, because I was, you know, tied to Rotten Tomatoes, whether I agreed with the tomato meter, which is the important score from the actual critics um, or not. 
I was still tied to it. Uh, and one day I had an experience with two stars that are pretty big names. They're A-listers and um, they're movie stars that I was just dying to get in the room and interview. And I was doing it on behalf of Rotten Tomatoes. And I remember I was so nervous because this is like, they are the queen and king of Hollywood. And when I got in the room and they announced my name and they said where I'm from, Rotten Tomatoes, these two actors, um, they threw me a little shade for really? working on yeah, but what made me have my moment was how I saved the interview by saying to them, please don't talk to me as though I'm a critic because I'm not. I'm not a critic for one of these major voting bodies. I'm a black gay man, you know, who was interviewing two of my favorite stars in the world. And I watched your film last night on behalf of a viewer, on behalf of the viewers. And I loved it. And I want you to talk to me like I'm a viewer. And I hope the people that watch this on the Rotten Tomatoes platform will see that you are selling this film to viewers, not to critics, because those are the folks that are gonna buy tickets. And I walked out of that room, um, get a lot, and I said to myself, I can't be the only one. I can't be the only one who, you know, doesn't watch these films like a critic, but instead watches them like a regular average Joe from Ohio, where I'm yeah. from. And I set out on this mission to create a platform. I didn't know it was gonna be an app at first, but create a platform that would allow the voices of viewers to be heard and amplified and viewed in Hollywood just as powerfully as the, view, uh, uh, as the voices of the small few critics that really run, um, that run Hollywood. There's a big kind of democratization of the viewpoints and, and allowing everybody to have a viewpoint and to express it in a way that's equal. I appreciate that. No, it's, it's so true. And I think that so many stars and so many studios, they get it. They get that social media, um, the conversations that are happening on Twitter and everywhere else are, are amazing because they are in a lot of ways going around the critics. How do you feel that Pop Viewers advances the conversation beyond Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, so I mean, listen, I think at the end of the day, Rotten Tomatoes does something very similar in a lot of ways to what we do because they do have an audience um, score off to the side. It's not the score that is touted the most, the tomato meters, what everybody talks about, um, but they do allow an audience to engage on their website. Um, but what we have, I think, that's very different is that we're not, that's not just what we do. We don't just allow people to rate and give a score to what they watched. We're a social community. So we're really fostering the idea of community around content, uh, connectivity around content. Uh, we allow our users to follow each other, um, to find their tribe of viewership and to be able to be informed by other people. And I think the biggest thing that makes us different, and I'm gonna borrow this from a venture capital fund that we spoke to yesterday, is that we're not a place people should go to when they know what they wanna watch. What's great about pop viewers is we really are opening up that discovery module for people that will really come to us to discover what to watch next, which to me is a much bigger need state right now. Oh yeah, Because absolutely. there is too much content to choose from. And I have to say no shade, but when I look at the uh, recommendations, let's say on Netflix or on Amazon, they don't really speak to me. I don't feel like they really are getting at the core of what I like to watch. I think those algorithms are rather random, not very good. And so having a community of people that are like-minded and are watching similar things and using that as a basis to recommend and to discover new shows and having a broader swath of those types of shows I think can really be a great thing. And 
um, I downloaded Pop Viewers and I've played around with it. I've left reviews. I loved it. I think it's very addicting. And I, what I really love about the reviews that people leave exactly advances the conversation beyond the typical reviews and, and ratings that people leave is that people will review it before they watch the show. They, they'll maybe leave a video a minute. You'll be like, hey, this show looks good. I think I'm going to try it out. And then they review it during they're watching of the show. Maybe they watched an episode or two and they're like, hey, I'm liking it so far. Maybe I'm going to keep going. And then at the end of it, they're like, I friggin' love this or I hated it or something. So you get this whole gamut of reactions from both intention to kind of being in the market for something to watching to the reviews at the end. And so I think there is a lot of data points that you are collecting in terms of people's viewing behavior that can speak a lot more directly to you. First off, you should be doing all of our commercials and marketing because you get it. <laughs> but well, wanna, you know how my people talk to your people, or well, the other way around. Most major media platforms that cover TV shows and movies, they're covering what folks are watching right now. The studios, they spend millions of dollars on releases, it's like that 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 three month buildup to a film being released or a TV show premiere happening. Then after that, you know, they don't really do a whole lot. But what I've kind of learned through the pop viewers, you know, back in looking at, you know, the data that we have is that people are finding new ways to discover content and they don't always go to the content that they saw the commercial for or that they saw the trailer for all over TV. They're more likely to go to the place and find the content that they heard through word of mouth of someone that said, you should watch The Queen's Gambit 17 different times. And they're finally like, okay, I'm going to watch it now. I'm six months late, but I'm going to watch it. And I, I love that we're able to do that. That is much more gratifying. And I like what you said in terms of word of mouth and getting those recommendations. You literally automate the word of mouth method because you are literally watching people telling you in videos what they're liking and what they're not liking and, and what they're watching. And so you can base your viewing habits on that, which I think is really cool. So Chris, you mentioned all of this data that basically is being collected in terms of people's viewpoints and their reviews and what they're watching. Do you see pop viewers and the data that it's collecting as a way to address lack of inclusivity in this market? And do you see the product promoting diversity and inclusion in those content reviews and in the, basically in the content that people can watch? Absolutely. I think that there is a problem um, that, you know, a lot of the systems, the data pools that exist around viewership are very antiquated. I think about a couple of years ago, Beyonce's homecoming that was so huge. I'll never forget how I saw Twitter lighting up and everyone I knew was watching Beyonce's Homecoming. And then I saw like a week later, Netflix re uh, revealed how many millions of folks watched it. Uh, and this was based on Nielsen data. But then I'm reading a line in there that said, but we can't account for mobile views. So Nielsen was unable to be able to extrapolate via their Nielsen data machine people that streamed Beyonce's home right home on their phones on their phones and we all know people are sharing a Netflix account but I found that there is a you know the community the black community especially we watch a lot of content and we find it through various ways through different ways not always the same traditional ways we're consuming it maybe on YouTube wherever mm -hmm. but I think that what we what we need is a richer more intentional more nuanced view 
at people of color and their and their habits around consuming content and what they're saying. And I think that you mentioned Netflix earlier. A lot of the media companies, they have access into what people are watching on their platform. And they're going to try their best to create the kind of content that is reflective of the needs and the, and the desires and likes and dislikes of how they've engaged on that platform. What we have and what I think can be a way to, to help shatter even more glass ceilings when it comes to inclusivity is being able to not just show how people of color and marginalized communities engage around just one platform's content, but across all platforms. So we're able, we're able to show how someone engages with HBO Max content, Hulu, Netflix, Amazon. And to me, that's very valuable and immensely important for us to tell those stories to the studios so they can begin to get it right and put a face yeah. to watching. Because there's, there's one thing by saying, okay, this number of people have liked or disliked this, but what about why? Why? Show us their faces. Show us what they're feeling. Um, show us their inflection points in their voices as they talk. Those sort of deeper dives I'm excited about, and I hope that we're able to, to showcase this diverse audience that way. Yeah, I think that really goes a long way to making sure that all voices are heard and catered to. Chris, you mentioned your earlier life as a journalist uh, mm -hmm. before you came into the tech world. And I think it's really cool that you saw a vision for something that needed to change and you jumped in to change it. Coming into tech in general, I think from a different industry, I think allows you to see it a little bit differently and bring in a different perspective from, let's say, somebody like me who has, I've been in tech my entire life. I started in the army and then my, my bachelor's and my master's, is, I've just all been in, in this one area. And so... My question to you is, as a journalist coming into the tech space, did you see anything with this external viewpoint that you felt were like needed calling out? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question because I pride myself on my integrity as a journalist and being able to identify unique stories. And one of the things that excited me whenever I began this journey with creating pop viewers was when I began to do a lot of research into different studies, uh, different data around engagement from Black and Latino communities into the tech spaces, I began to recognize that, wait, you know, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Snapchat, uh, Vine, the one that's gone now, they're number one, number two, or number three, like the top amount of users for their platforms were Black people and Latino people. And I also began to, you know, turn it on its head and realize that at the top of these companies, among the top 10 employees or top 10 shareholders, there was little to zero representation of Black people or Latino people. There's proof and there's evidence that people in my community, uh, Black people from under, you know, Black people, people of color, people that are from underrepresented communities, they outperform white people when it comes to using and adapting to these tech platforms and social media apps. But I find it very troubling as a journalist when I stop and I realize that at the top, the leadership in these multi-billion dollar companies is not reflective of the user base. And the, and, and the equity in terms of shareholders and the wealth that's being made at the top, it's problematic and it's kind of scary. I think I look at 
my son who's nine years old, he is obsessed with TikTok. And I don't really get TikTok all the way. I can be honest, as an app creator, TikTok kind of overwhelms me. There's just too much going on. But what I've always noticed, or I've I've noticed since he's been using it the last year and a half, is every time he's scrolling through that feed, I'm hearing hip hop. I'm hearing yes. an old R&B song repurposed and snippet. And I'm seeing primarily <laughs> white kids and non, non-Black teenagers who are vibing out and performing and doing these challenges on TikTok. And I'm recognizing that that's not accidental. You know, TikTok recognizes, I believe, that the Black community oftentimes are the trendsetters. You know, the vernacular that's used, um, the lyrics and hip hop, that is what young people care about now. And that is what young people cared about when I was growing up, you know, also. But it's, it's now these tech companies are trying to shift their marketing towards young people of color. And that's wonderful. I love that. Bring them to the party. My only prayer and my only hope is that you begin to allow them to have ex, uh, access to equity, access to shares of that company very early on because you're seeding it with them. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you. And in fact, I think that, I think two things. First of all, I think that big tech does prey on Black creativity mm-hmm. in a way that, like you said, you see TikTok videos, all these dance challenges that originated from Black artists that are not getting credited for them. And I think it's, you know, the epitome of irony that you see, just like you said, white people in the suburbs doing these dances without realizing that these are based on the lives of people that you are maybe not valuing in Mm -hmm. other areas of life. And it is regrettable that Mm -hmm. you only value the music that they do and not give them the credit for it and the love and the respect that they deserve in everything else. But I also think that it is the evolution of a much broader process of exploitation of black artists throughout the years, whether it was Elvis Presley, you know, recording songs that were created by a black artist, whether it's if you saw, you know, recently Ma Rainey's Black Bottom on Netflix and that story of just being exploited and not given credit for their creativity. And I think that what you see today on TikTok basically preying on that creativity. No, absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned um, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is, you know, hot on Netflix right now. And you can go on Pop Viewers and see all the reactions and reviews from our community. But when I watched that movie, there was that sombering moment where you see Ma Rainey as the number one jazz artist in the country, but yet she's being paid a fraction of what she's supposed to be being paid. And you literally see one of her band members, who's a composer, who's already composed a bunch of hits, being told, that they can't pay him what he's um, supposed to be paid for what for, for his work. And we've seen this sort of thing happen throughout the course of um, history when it comes to Black people performing. We are global phenomenons. We were global phenomenons back in the day with Josephine Baker and Dorothy Dandridge. However, around the world, back in the early 1900s, you couldn't even stay at the hotel where you're performing. You can go put butts in seats, sell right. out the ballroom for weeks on end, you, you know, sh- show up on stage in the gown, but guess how you had to get there? Through the back room, through the kitchen, through the maid's quarters. And we're seeing the same thing, I think, in the, in, in the tech space. I'll bring it back to a more recent app that I'm on, um, Clubhouse. Six months ago, 
every black person I knew who was an influencer, who was tied to media, was talking about Clubhouse. Before it even popped, before it became a thing that was like being covered on CNBC and everywhere else, they went to great lengths to bring black influencers to Clubhouse to the point that a lot of black folks I knew were like, wait, is this black owned? Like this must be black owned because every every black influencer right now is on Clubhouse. Mm. More recently, you heard about their new valuation, the new funding that they raised, and they're still not even uh, app that everyone can get access to. It's yeah, still- I just got an invite. Yeah, but but I think what's interesting is, and there's been stories about it, so I love that people are calling it out. Uh, CNBC has a story up right now about how Clubhouse got their cool cred from the Black community. Absolutely. And, and they intentionally did so. And it's intentional, and yes. Is, I don't believe, I could be wrong, but from what, I, from what my little research has shown me, there's no Black person who's a majority shareholder in that company. You know, we're trendsetters in tech, we're trendsetters in sports. And I think that the, the cards weren't stacked in our favor. They're not in our favor now, but I do, I do hope that we continue to have this reckoning where we can speak up about it. We can speak up about the lack of opportunities um, to own things, to, to, to get the access to the capital to create your big ideas. Absolutely. And I, you know, I, I hope one of the missions of, of Who's Your Data is part of that reckoning as well and to bring these topics to light as they pertain to the tech world and bias and data so that we can discuss them and address them. To that extent, it seems to me coming into this space as a gay black man, you probably did not have many examples and uh, inspirations or role models to draw from. So how is that experience and what challenges or lessons or or advice would you give to people thinking of making that leap and coming into the space? You know, it's it's been scary. I'm going to say that uh, first and foremost. When I first began this journey, I thought about this woman at my church who was older, up in age, didn't really talk to me a whole lot, but she knew I was going to college. My mom had talked about it at church at some point. And I was going to be the first person in my family to get to go to college and graduate from college. And I got a little scholarship, but I was paying for the rest of my own. And I was going away. That was the big deal. I wasn't going to the small community college in Warren, Ohio. I was going four hours away to a school that was, I think, at the time, 10% minorities. So that meant, you know, that's Black, Latino, Native American, everything. Um, And she came up to me and she gave me a hug. I was getting ready to go to college. And she said to me, she gave me a hug and said just one sentence. If you don't see the example, be the example. She gave me a kiss and walked away. And I was like, what did she just say? What does that even mean? Like, and why did she say that to me? And it didn't really hit me until I was in college my senior year. And I was applying to be an intern for Good Morning America. And I didn't have the money to move here to be an intern. I'd never flown on a plane. It was really scary. And I, and I realized this is my time to be the example. You know, I'm, I'm gonna be a black gay guy working with Diane Sawyer and Charlie Gibson at Good Morning America. And no one in my family has, you know, flown on planes and has a lot of air miles and done anything great when it comes to travel. Um, and none of them have ever been in studios and, you know, worked around stars, but I'm gonna be the example. Every time I think about something that scares me that I wanna do and that I feel called to do, I say, all right, Chris, look around you. Do you see any examples? 
all right, you don't. It's okay. You're going to be the example. With the tech space, I recognize right away early on that I am the antithesis of pattern matching. When it comes to how financing uh, capital is given out, you know, um, less than 6% of VC guys and gals are of color. You know, the majority of them are white men that went to one of two schools, Stanford or Harvard. And I'm not knocking those two schools. I got plenty of friends that have gone to them. But at the end of the day, the reality is the mountain we have to climb to get in those rooms is a lot higher. Yeah, and absolutely. We're in those rooms, finding the common bond and being able to overcome our imposter syndrome to impress the types of people that are behind the desk or behind the, the, the Zoom, if you will, asking you really tough questions. And then you got to also recognize that you're not the match for who they normally give funding to. So you have to get over that fear and recognize you have to be the example. And just like the folks that came before me, that had to be examples on the court, behind the mic as singers, as president of the United States, you have to sometimes be a lot smarter, work a lot harder, stay up a lot longer at mm -hmm. night and send a lot more emails before you get a yes. I really love what you said about, you know, if you don't see the example, be the example. You can borrow that if you want, you can have it. That's, that's gonna be the title of this episode. <laughs> oh, I love it, I um, love it, oh my God. She'd be so proud. Being the change that you want to see in the world, I think mm -hmm. is, is a really, really cool, or being the example that you don't see, Albeit, yeah. it comes with a lot of pressure. And I think it comes with letting go of fear and truly being yourself. Like I, everyone that I've talked to that's written me a check, there's been about five people who have who, who've invested in pop viewers to date. And we're looking for investors. We're looking for um, partners that can, you know, help us bring this vision to life. So please reach out um, listeners. Yes, if there are any <laughs> investors listening to this. Yes, but every single person, I wanna say something, every single person that's, that's invested a check and written a check, at some point before they gave me that check or transferred the money to our, our account, they said the same thing that it gave me chills. I'm investing in you as a founder. I love your idea, I love your company, it's a great company, but I really believe in you and I believe in your vision and I believe that no matter what kind of pivots you're gonna to have to make, you have what it takes as an individual. I think it's so important to know that you have to bring the wholeness and the fullness of, of who you are to anything to be great. Oprah talks about it, my, my godmother in my head, that our most powerful selves are being 100% who we are, not trying to be like anyone else. Oprah talked about it in a podcast she did recently. Speaking of podcasts, you should get her on your show because she knows a lot about that, believe it or not. <laughs> but, put in um, a good word for me. Absolutely. So often, Gilad, I can get emotional, but I won't cry about it. But so often I've tried to be someone who I'm not to be in certain rooms that I wanted to be in. This company and this opportunity for me came at a time in my life where that just didn't work anymore. I was tired of trying to be someone else and tired of trying to fit the type of person that I thought, you know, America, the media would accept. And it wasn't until I stood in my power to be authentically me, that as a black gay man, that as a father, um, but who also has a big vision and who knows about leadership. Um, it wasn't until I, I tapped into that and stood in that light and in that truth that the pieces began uh, to fall into place. Yeah, I agree with you. And as a as a gay Jewish man, I can say that. No, I, I agree in that once you you have to kind of grow into yourself and and let those pieces fall where they may and be yourself at, at, in the job or wherever. And that releases a lot of pressure 
and a lot of uh, anxiety where you're like, people are just either going to accept you or they're not going to accept you. And, and you know that the people that don't accept you are the, not the ones that you want to be associated with anyway. I also like what you said about, you know, that they're investing in the person, because I think that also when you are hiring for a job, sometimes you have to look beyond the job description and the job title. Let's say that you have somebody that's interviewing for you and you recognize the specialness of that person. Maybe they don't 100% fit the description of the job, but maybe it's that you need to change the job description in order to fit the person rather than change the person in order to fit the job description. That is so powerful and so well said. And Thank you. No, it you know, is. That's what we do here is that hard hitting investigative journalism <laughs> and those uh, inspirational quotes. Well, looking to the future and 2021, is there anything that you are excited for or looking forward to? I'm super excited um, for a couple of reasons. One, we're raising a lot of money this year to build this community and to make it even stronger. Um, we're going to be doing a WeFunder, so look out for that. Um, I'm not sure when this episode will air, but you guys can follow me on Twitter and follow pop viewers on Twitter and social media. You will see more about our WeFunder. And I'm excited to know with WeFunder and with, you know, uh, equity crowdfunding platforms, um, what was a shareholder and an accredited investor is changing in a major way. Uh, March 15th uh, is going to be a, a, a change up with the government regulations around who an accredited investor can be. Because for so long, the kind of people that were able to get access to early ownership in startups via crowdfunding platforms were what the government considered worthy of being accredited investors. And March 18th, sorry, March 15th, that all changes. All you got to be is 18 years old hmm. and have a bank account. So this we're going to be really interesting because it changes, yeah. right? It democratizes again, this, this, this uh, community of investors. And it'll be interesting to see how it changes the demographic makeup of Absolutely. this community, because now it can be anybody. Now this opens up a lot of opportunities for people who did not have access before. Absolutely, and we're so excited for that this year. I would love to be able, when we close this round of funding, we're doing a small portion of it, a small portion of it on WeFunder. I'm going to go to VCs, et cetera, for more funding. But I'm excited to know that maybe we'll have a thousand owners that are people, everyday people, who never thought of or never thought they could be an accredited investor and have early equity in the company, but they will with pop viewers. And we're going to make them proud and make them successful and make them hopefully very wealthy. Uh, and I'm also looking forward to just growing this platform out. You know, we we launched a website, popviewers.com, this week where we have editorial content. Um, I interviewed uh, the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, original Aunt Viv, Janet Huber, who's amazing. We showed her during the interview uh, a mashup of reactions from pop viewers to her being a part of the reunion. And she was like, uh, that must have been amazing. And it was a big moment for me because you guys know I've been doing this whole interview thing for a long time. But to be able to take the reactions from a tech platform that I'm the CEO of and show them to a black woman in Hollywood who for so long has been, you know, marginalized. Forgotten, yeah. Yeah, and for speaking out, that was beautiful. And if we can get some vaccines going, I would love to begin doing pop viewers watch parties. Where folks oh, that would be amazing. Sign me yeah, up. Folks can come together and fan out in person and watch some cool, can I curse? Can I swear? Yeah. 
Yeah, watch some actually cool you're in, you're required to curse. Yes, come together and watch some cool shit together and vibe out and open up their phone once in a while on the app. I shall be waiting for my invitation in the mail. You'll be getting invited to all the great soirees in New York City. Well, Chris, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk to me and telling me more about Pop Viewers and about your experience and journey in the tech world. I appreciate it. It was a fascinating story. Listen, thank you for having me on and thank you for using you know, your life as a class and your career as a class because Black people need to know how valuable our data is. We have power with our data. We're a powerful community. And when we show up, we show out and people monetize that. And we have to be very conscious of how we show up and begin to find ways to take back our data. <laughs> We're going to do that in 2021. Let's do it. Well, thanks for joining us today and listening to this episode. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed, send them to whosyourdatanow at gmail.com. That's whosyourdatanow, all one word, at gmail.com. Thanks and see you next time on Who's Your Data? <laughs>